0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business
1: further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com businessgoldcard Business Gold
2: This is a joy, and I'm going to cut to the chase of what Ethan Harris really did. There was a small shop that went under, it was called Lehman Brothers, and he was one of a select few that provided immense stability to Lehman Brothers and the debris. After that, he migrated over to Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, where he's been a force for decades, and he's retiring here. I'm gonna cut to the chase. Is Moynihan <laughs> aware of this? Because Brian comes <laughs> on Bloomberg. <laughs> well, I really think real GDP's gonna do this. And he's looking at, down at Ethan Harris and stuff. Did Moynihan
3: <laughs> allow this? Yeah, he's allowing it. You know, one of the great things about our CEO is that he does read our stuff, and he really cares about his research department. So uh, I'm going to miss that. I mean, one of the great things about working at B of A is that the firm really cares about research.
2: I've been busting He's selling this like, a, you know, it's just great. Brian, you can't come out in front of the camera. Stay over there, uh, Brian. What's important here is you wrote a magnificent book years ago, Ben Bernanke's Fed. It, it was a, a piercing book with your experience at the Fed about the dynamics of the Fed. What does
3: Jerome Powell's Fed look like as you go to write your next book? Yeah, so I, I am going to finally write that next book you've been asking me about for 15 years. Um, You know, I think what we're going to see is a turning back the clock. I think the experiment that the Fed did with this 2020 uh, new framework didn't work. Um, And we're going to see a turning back of the clock to something that looks more like a Ben Bernanke or a Janet Yellen Fed. Um, I don't think it makes sense for the Fed to do what they did, which is wait to the last second, wait for inflation to be really underway, and then start to hike interest rates. So, I don't expect radical change, but rather kind of just go back to the old model.
4: Well, the old model, is it the old model meaning 10 years ago, or is it the old model 40 years ago, which was very different? And that's really the big debate we've been hearing about. What's your view of how we're going to look back at this moment in history? Was it a sea change that ushered in a new era of high inflation, or was it a pandemic induced blip that's going to go back to what we were seeing five years ago?
3: Well, I think the Fed has demonstrated that they learned a lesson here. They started very late, and you'll hear that from Bill Dudley later today. He was one of the people arguing they should get moving. And they started too late, and then they did an incredibly aggressive catching up. And that was a signal to me that they understood that they'd made a mistake. Because you don't want to be going 75 basis points a meeting. It's very dangerous normally, but if you were way behind the curve, you catch up. So, I don't I don't agree with people who say they're going to compromise on their inflation target. In his press conference, he repeats over and over and over again every chance he gets, he says we're serious about hitting our 2% inflation target. He's putting his credibility on the line. He does not want to be Arthur Burns, he wants to be Paul Volcker.
4: What have we learned though about this aggressive tightening? You're saying they don't want to do that. They did that. Nothing broke. You could argue, okay, we saw some bank uh, rumbles, but right now we're looking at, at housing reaccelerating, seeming to have already bottomed, and much of the economy performing better than expected. What do you make of that?
3: Well, I think that they we're up against some very big tailwinds in the economy. You had all that massive excess saving left over from the fiscal stimulus during the crisis. You've had a pent-up demand for workers with all these job openings. And so the Fed did achieve some weakening in parts of the economy that are interest-sensitive, but the consumer just refused to roll over. You know, jobs were great, um, the, the, the savings were high, and they could spend their savings. So I think it's delayed the the weakness, And I, I, we still think a mild recession probably early next year. But like a lot of other forecasters, we've been forced to concede mm-hmm. that it's not here. It's going to take a while. Um, I don't think it's the end of the world. There's this ha- hard landing, soft landing debate. Uh, come on. If you're forecasting the unemployment rate going from three and a half to four and a half, that's not a hard landing. That's great. That's normal unemployment. Uh-huh. So it's the people I disagree with are the perfect landing crowd that says, oh, you don't have to have any pain at all, that inflation's going to go away on its own, no adjustment in the economy. That I disagree with. But it's going to be a soft landing, either bumpy or a little more bumpy, but it's not, right. not going to be a, a hard landing. With our new data
2: capture, with all the noise that's out there, is there too much communication? We opened the show with a beautiful vignette one of our interns put together of all these Fed speakers speaking. Is there too much communication?
3: Well, I mean, th- that's the structure of the Fed, right? It's a very— Not the uh, old Fed. Well, when when Greenspan dominated, he, would, he suppressed uh, yeah. the, the rest of the committee's uh, openness. And so uh, th- that's changed under the new Fed chairs. So there's a lot of information coming out. Um, I think the, the business reporters are a bit too hyped up about this whole thing. They keep talking about hawks and doves and all that. Hawkish. Hawkish pause. Yeah. Well, look look at the Fed. There's been virtually no dissents through a period of way behind the curve, fastest tightening mm-hmm. in history, and now data-dependent. Nobody's dissenting. Right. So the, right. The, the idea that, you know, you need to... Uh, get all pumped up about what some dove said or what some hawk said, I think is way overdone.
2: Um, You you have been prodigious in building careers. I mean, what you did for Michelle Myers, she went off to some charge card company to, I don't (laughs) know what she was thinking. Moynihan's yet to recover from Michelle Meyer leaving. (laughs) But the bottom line is you built careers. You came out of the Newtonian calculus at Clark University up in Massachusetts. The idea here of math matters. Is there too much math now in the game?
3: Well, not not in the part of the area I'm in, right? If you're if you're a Fed economist or a street economist and you're trying to figure out the economy and policy, um, we all understand that it's a lot of storytelling mm-hmm. and historic analogy. That you don't want to get too crazy about the modeling. Yeah. In academia, there is has been this drift into mathiness where you you impress people by the complexity of the model. Yeah but it doesn't really work in the real world. So there's become a split in the economics profession between people who are practical economists and the ones that uh, do the mathiness.
4: We're speaking with Ethan Harris of Bank of America Securities after more than a decade at Bank of America, who is retiring as of this Friday, I believe. I believe this is your last interview that has been scheduled, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Mm. I want to pivot a little bit because we're talking about looking back over a trajectory of a career and understanding where we are at this moment, do you think that in the future, people coming into this industry will be working in an office to the same (laughs) degree? Do you think that that will be one of the big sea changes that persists over the next decades?
3: Well, I think to some degree, hybrid is the new normal. Um, I think there's a battle going on between corporate leadership and and the staff about whether that's really what they want to do. Harris getting um, himself into trouble. Two yeah. days. He's on the two-day well, countdown, and maybe, maybe, HR's
2: compliance is like, what's he saying? Yeah, so maybe,
3: maybe today is my last day. Um, but, uh, no, no, I'm not talking about Bank of America. I'm talking about in general, you know, and, and there's a trade-off, right? So it's definitely not good for developing new people to have everyone sitting in their pajamas at home. That's not a good May
2: thing. May we quote you on that? Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> if they don't have their Panama's on, then you're really in trouble. But anyways, um, so you don't want uh, to be entirely at home. On the other hand, in my case, I have a crazy New York City suburb commute. And so for me, I'm more productive if I'm working hybrid. So that's really the debate. It's about you know what's the most productive model. And I think in many industries, hybrid is going to end up being – the thing.
4: A sensitive question as we talk about some of the earnings of tech companies and artificial intelligence. Is ChatGPT going to be your new research assistant?
3: You know, I tried it. Um, and in fact, a friend of my son tried it out, and he put my name in there and started asking questions about me. Now, I've got a lot of visibility in the press and stuff. What I found with Chat, the, the Chat uh, app is that at first, it gave very good answers. It, it found my uh, my bio and and wrote it up in better language than I did. Um, but then, as my son's friend kept asking tougher questions, it started returning nonsense. It started telling me that I'd won some, great uh, prize in Japan for some, yeah, there's some, some like, it's like a peace prize or something in Japan. And so if you pushed it and tried to get it to get really interesting, it gave you junk. I've got to
2: ask you this because it's the heritage. Can you give all of our global Wall Street audience a vignette of what it was like, not the final days of Lehman, but a week after Lehman? a month after Lima Give us a, a window and how uh, you and others had the leadership there to pick up the pieces.
3: Well, I mean, you, you, everyone was in shell shock. Um, and uh, it. I was lucky. Um, you know, my team got picked up by Barclays. Mm. And so we we had a life raft, a to, to, uh, lifeboat to, to jump into. Um, but, you know, you were kind of in this environment where uh, you had both the these forced marriages going on in Wall Street, which are never fun, at the same time that you have this incredibly uh, demanding and interesting and challenging world you're trying to forecast, right, right. where the economy right. is just collapsing, and uh, it uh, it was an amazing time, and you just had to kind of, you know, lean on each other a bit, I guess.
2: Ethan Harris, thank you so much Uh, with a huge commitment to
0: the show. It's just been great. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
5: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q and
6: Francis donned a man life with us. And, and Francis, I just can't believe how transparent TK just was over a, a legal issue.
7: Well, in the CFA curriculum, they talk a lot about transparency, and they talk about how you shouldn't even give the appearance of conflict. So Tom looks like he's done a great job there. <laughs> yeah, but
2: the other issue is who let her in. Uh, the, the the major issue here is insider trading is not as clear cut as the public thinks. They get it can get really back and forth about who said what when. I was stunned by the allegations, I would think. Uh, Francis Donald is with us right now. We say thank you. Uh, thrilled you're here this morning. What are you writing about this weekend on Y equals C plus I plus G plus uh, NX? What's the dynamic there? Is it investment or is it the, the mystery of this buoyant consumer?
7: You know We are trying to stick to process even as price moves against our base case, which is that, yes, still all of our leading indicators and our economic model suggests that the best base case scenario is indeed a recession in Q4. Now, that's not actually the game. The game as an asset manager is not to say whether there's recession or a soft landing, but to get a sense as to what markets will price in and out over the next three to six months. So what we're talking about is that in the next one to two months, we actually see economic data that will still give the appearance of soft landing that's an opportunity to chase some risk but if you're looking further out if you're looking beyond the next three months we still have to maintain this call Uh, it doesn't feel good as everyone moves towards the soft landing thesis but when you stick to the leaning indicators we have to say that is the best base case
4: what does it mean to lean into risk right now what are those areas
7: well, there is even as a macro strategist, as an economist, I can say sometimes you need to participate in momentum-driven rallies. This happens. Uh, macro is not always the primary investment driver. Again, that is not the most comfortable thing to say as a macro strategist, but an overlay, and it matters much more at inflection points. I do not believe right now we are at an inflection point, even though uh, today is a Fed meeting and it may feel that way. That inflection point is to win that recession. will probably come back into the story. It's probably three months from now. So if you want to play off momentum, sentiment, and technicals, now is the time to shine if those are your strengths. Did somebody
2: overnight push their recession call out to 2025? I'm going to say Goldman Sachs, but I'm making it up. I didn't see that. Somebody out 25. there. I mean, every, everybody's pushing it out, not, not 2015. Well, they have done a year. Yeah, I, I mean, we're just, three we're just, months. are just, four months. can you raise it to 2026?
7: Sure. And I'm sure that if you asked any economist, they would have some sort of recession over the next five years, because I don't believe that cycles are necessarily dead, but it's a good question. And we ask ourselves okay this okay all okay. the time, which is why hasn't the recession that everyone's forecast materialized? It's probably because, and again, you know, you have to look at what a standard economic model would tell you. You also have to say what may be not true about that model or what's different about this environment, and a lot of strategists have said this time is fundamentally different. My view is that, well, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are elements of this story that are going to be very different. This recession that occurs later this year and into 2024 will look slightly different. Unemployment rate probably not going to rise to the same extent, and you do have to question why isn't it here yet. It's probably because you have what we like to call cycle extenders in play, things like labor shortages, excess savings. We're not talking, you know, you don't need a PhD to figure out that there are things that are different about this story, but negating all of history, negating all of the power of leading indicators to me is not prudent in this environment.
6: So Germany has a recession. Yes. Europe still has an inflation problem. As you anticipate that growth downturn in the United States, do you also envision that maybe we have a sticky inflation problem too simultaneously?
7: Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually what concerns me more. We spend so much time th- talking about recession or soft landing. There are a heck of a lot of environments in between those two things. And frankly, if i I'm an asset manager, which I am, and trying to figure out how to invest over the next five years. A classic recession rebound, we have a playbook for that. You can do well in that type of environment. What concerns me more, what we don't have the playbooks for, is what Europe is experiencing now. Sticky high inflation with no growth. Uh, One thing I'm worried about is actually this concept of the soft landing being green light, being the most bullish outcome. I'm not sure that a soft landing is as bullish as everybody makes it out to be because we have four cuts priced in for next year. And if we don't get those because the economy is all clear, we have a re-rating to be made in a variety of risk assets. I'm not sure that we've really thought through what does soft landing mean for equity markets. It's not as bullish as it may appear.
4: How much do you think it's a bear market trap almost to lure people back to the 60-40 ahead of what you just explained in terms of the vulnerabilities in that type of maybe soft landing, but high inflation, no growth kind of
7: circumstance. Well, again, it really depends on your timeline. If you're operating on a one to two month uh, timeline, it's not a trap. It's an opportunity in order to uh, really leverage what we'll probably see is some cyclicality, some cyclical bounce and things like manufacturing data. But if you're a longer term investor, absolutely, you should be looking at these bullish runs as opportunities to add back to quality and maybe reduce your risk. I think it's also going to call into play why there's a lot more focus on alternative assets and private assets. Uh, Because in this type of environment, one that John is describing as slower growth, recessions with sticky high inflation, we're going to be looking for asset classes that really reduce that volatility and are less correlated with the 60-40.
2: Asking for a friend, is the meeting this afternoon, is the press conference this afternoon a snooze fest?
7: Uh, I hope for Marcus that it is, and I would expect that Chair Powell also hopes that it's a snooze But what's your prediction (laughs) here? I I don't believe there is anything that Chair Powell could say today that uh, would convince the market to take out rate cuts from next year. And that's because just about everybody recognizes that Mm -hmm. the Fed does not have the luxury of pivoting. What's happened since the last meeting? We've got ag prices surging, inflation expectations in the longer end of the curve are up quite a bit, and financial conditions are easy. He has no choice. He cannot go dovish. If he does, it'll be a little bit of an accident. So this is a market that's probably going to start putting a little less weight on what the Fed says and more on what 2024 is going to look like.
6: How do you think he manages what is increasingly looking like a broken consensus on the FOMC?
7: Well, that's a tough one, probably like a lot of strategists are doing, which is coming out with a base case and then thinking through all the other scenarios behind the scenes. Goldman does a good job about talking about a base case and then a probability weighted base case uh, and th- so the Fed can start talking a little bit more about scenarios but it comes back to the issue that the Fed has to control inflation expectations I think this is a big theme for the next five years that central banks will have to have a moment where they admit we don't know what's always going on and secondly we can't combat all elements of inflation that's going to be the story for how markets trade around central banks over the se- or the secular theme
6: Francis this was awesome come in the studio more often <laughs> I'd
7: love to I love you. it
6: Francis Donald of Manulife.
2: Right now on the bond, John, I'm going to bounce it back to you here. It's Kathy Jones is with us. She's chief fixed income strategist at Charles Schwab. And I think this is underplayed, John. There's been real stasis here, the real yield stasis, 10-year-old stasis. All my radar's up on the bond market because it's boring right now.
6: Hey, Kathy, let's get to it. Will it be boring <clears throat> at 2.30 Eastern time? Oh, I'm
1: sure we'll get some excitement. You know, uh, you always do. Um, but you know, as you said, that's widely anticipated. The Fed's going to hike. And then what's forward guidance going to be? And I think the expectation is they'll sound hawkish, but they may indicate a pause. How does that get parsed out in the, the Q&A session? What does Paul kind of communicate here? Will we get a dissenting vote, uh, possibly? Or at least a hint that a handful of Fed officials are not on board with more more rate hikes. Um, that could communicate a lot to the market.
6: We've spoken to a couple of people this morning who think that inflation reaccelerates later this year. I just wonder if that's in your base case and what it would mean for a yield curve right now that's already deeply inverted.
1: Yeah, we don't have a real uh, acceleration in inflation built in. Um, there's a lot of disinflation in the pipeline that is still flowing through, especially when you look at wholesale goods, prices, and we're not seeing that huge amount of pressure on the inflation side. Of course, you, you have oil, uh, which is, is going to be there, but ex-food and energy, um, it doesn't look like we're seeing a reacceleration acceleration at this stage of the game. Um, growth is still substandard. It's been five quarters. of 1.5% GDP growth. It's really hard, I think, to push the inflation narrative from there. Would it be bad if Jay Powell came out and said,
4: we have no clue, we don't know where this is going, we're going to pause, Raphael Bostic is going to dissent, because he probably will, because he's been the, the lone dove out there that's been pretty vocal, all of us aren't sure, here's what we're watching, call it a day. Why can't he just do that?
1: I I sort of wish he would, to tell you the truth. Um, But I think the Fed has to, they have forecasts, they have to communicate some sort of confidence about going forward. But, you know, the truth is they don't know. They never know. Nobody really knows what's going to happen in the next few quarters. Um, They can only follow the indicators and the trends. We have, as Tom mentioned, very high real rates. We have tightening credit at the banks a lot. And we'll get the senior loan officers, I think, pretty soon. I, I would imagine. The Fed has done some work on what's going on behind the scenes at the banks. Um, We're not waiting for the quarterly report to come out. So they may have a feel for just how tight credit is getting. So those are all going to go into the equation. And then QT continues. We've still got that going on in the background. So tightening is still happening, even if they pause. Uh, And I think that that may be part of the message that that comes out.
4: And one aspect of this, and we're seeing this in terms of two-year yields going up as high as they have, Higher than the previous meeting, even as risk assets continue to rally. Can they, with conviction, say they are not going to hike next year and really push against people who are saying, well, it might be a recession? Could they give some indication of how high the bar is for them to really ease?
1: Well, Powell, uh, I think it was last November, outlined four things that he was watching for a pivot for a change in rates. And one was this disinflation from the wholesale markets to retail pricing. Um, you could sort of say, yeah, that's happened. Um, he's talked about a sub-trend um, GDP growth for a number of quarters. where. I would argue we've probably had that over the last, you know, year or so. Um, he talked about, uh, you know, slowdown in housing prices, and we're starting to see that, but it hasn't flown, th- you know, kind of flowed through to the data. And then I think that there's the the wage data. And so we have to wait for that. So I think they could outline the criteria um, and then say this is what we're watching. I think they've kind of outlined it uh, in general over the last year or two. But we're waiting to see all of the boxes get checked. We're waiting to see everything kick in, and I would argue (coughs) that... You know, the labor date is probably the final one.
2: Let's go from 60,000 feet down to six feet. I'm over a kitchen table this weekend. I've still not recovered from the bond debacle of 18 months ago. I thought bonds were always supposed to go up. What is the retail recommendation to participate in fixed income out to 2026?
1: So we like extending duration either with a barbell or, say, a ladder. But, uh, um, ladder
2: out is appropriate?
1: Yeah. Yeah, laddering is fine because it takes you out of the game give of trying to a, time the market. Give us a
2: duration gap on that, a maturity gap on how you ladder up.
1: Yeah, we like the, a one to seven year right now. But it depends. If you're in the muni market, you might want to go a little further out because the Well, the like curve 30 is sloped. years or the Austrian <laughs> and, piece? No, no Austrian Damn. pieces. No, That's what 30 I did. killed <laughs>
2: This is a really important lesson, John. You ladder out with someone, an adult like this. And retail's laddering out, should we go out 10 years or 20 years? Because they're yield hogs and they want to pick up yield. Ms. Jones is laddering one to seven. That's a massive lesson right
6: there. How's that century bond doing? Ah, it's killing it or
2: killing It's portfolio? It's, brutal. it's, it's just, killing it. Yeah, <laughs> I was
6: going to say. It's just, you know. It's amazing. You know, At the time when all of that stuff was being issued, when Argentina came to the market, it was one of those moments where like, everyone knew. Everyone knew it. it wasn't like you had that contrarian okay. thought, well, this is a bubble, this is no, bad. No. Like Everyone knew it was. They also knew that negative yields was deeply unsustainable. They just got more negative and persisted for a long time, Lisa.
4: This is when you know something's truly a bubble, when people say maybe it's a bubble that can just exist in perpetuity. Totally. and Bonds have a new place where it's really capital appreciation and the, or the, 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 the price appreciation, not the actual coupon, which is nothing.
6: Yeah, we were going to the bond market for capital returns. Yeah. And a monster bond market rally that yields are negative great but there'll be more negative and prices well, are going up an and that, that was the story like yeah. the last 10 years tom
2: yeah. i mean i mean it is i mean the last the whole last 10 years last 16 years
6: kathy jones well. thank you it's yeah. good to see you kathy jones a Charles swap there
0: nobody ever says make it complicated that is why nationwide makes simplicity a priority
6: Dan awesome. Ives alongside us this morning, and good morning, Dan.
2: I, I, I couldn't it's, tell, it's, my eyes it's couldn't It's good to tell. see it.
6: I thought you were going to say, at the corner of my eye, I saw this fluorescent jacket, and that's when I met Dan <laughs> Ives. Dan, I always reflect on this video, and you've heard this story before, forgive me, but you remember the clip from 60 Minutes in the late 90s, and there's this very sort of smug journalist asking an analyst about Amazon being bigger than Sears and saying, bigger than Sears? And you look back on it 30 years later, 25 years later, and it sounds <coughs> ridiculous. So in moments like these, I try and be maybe a little bit modest about what i don't know and try and be a little bit you know humility is the word maybe just you know (laughs) try and have some humility about this ai moment dan do you think we need a bigger dose of humility about how big this could be
8: I mean, I think it's even going to be bigger than the street is even anticipating. And I think what we saw from Microsoft and Google just further confirms what we saw from NVIDIA. I mean, the use cases are exploding across the board. And if you, I look at this as a 1995 moment, biggest transformation that we've seen in tech in 30 years. And I think that's why th- this is just what's going to lead, obviously despite Fed and macro, it's the start of a new tech bull market in my opinion.
4: There is the nuance, though, when people start to dig into what does AI mean and which areas are the investable and most lucrative areas. Is it going to be generative AI, where basically you can go to any retailer, put your avatar in, try on clothes, and then order things, or is it something else? What are you looking for to determine who the winners are going to be?
8: Yeah, well, right now, New York City cab driver knows that the first derivative, NVIDIA and Microsoft, and I think that's been proven again and again top of the mountain Now it's all about who's second, third, fourth derivative. It's really software and chips. When I look at names like Salesforce.com, MongoDB, you look at Snowflake, I think that's really just tip of the iceberg. I think others across the chip ecosystem. And what we're really starting to see now, it's all about use cases. that that That's why right now investors, they're just looking, if you look at, oh, it's expensive on next year's number, it's really looking out two, three, four years. I believe this from everything we're hearing, it could be eight to 10% of budgets next year for IT from less than 1% today.
4: So if you take a look at the price action today, with Microsoft shares lower, because they didn't necessarily deliver on the profitability of AI yet, they can't, they're investing still, and they're not delivering as fast of some sort of investment on the cloud space, what would you say to investors in terms of how they should look at this valuation? How they should look at some of the rejiggering of the top executives? and put a price target on that.
8: Yeah, it's a great, and that's, that was all my conversations last night and even earlier this morning with institutional investors. Look, Nadella, the tactician, the Hall of Famer. I mean, this is just getting the popcorn out ready for what I view as actually an accelerating growth story. They're not gonna, right. they're they, they're not, Cook style, gonna give their playbook away. They're gonna keep this conservative, and I view just a sandbag special as they continue to just beat numbers over the next few quarters, which is why I believe Microsoft a year from now it's going to join Apple in that $3 trillion, I think mm-hmm. what, $3.5 trillion, what I see in a year. George
2: Hammond writes in the FT today about the AI crew. He's got Anthropic, Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI. Okay, I guess that's the new industry organization around this. The Luddites are going to show up. We're going to do a 19th century redux here of the damage of AI. How do these giant companies with the profitability they have handle the 21st century Luddites?
8: Okay, Stronger, to get stronger. There'll be some self-regulation, but ultimately, if you look from a regulatory perspective, they're going 20 miles an hour in the right lane. Technology is going 100 in the left lane. So I think really the, mm-hmm. the stronger and get stronger. If you look at Microsoft, you look at what we see out of the Alphabet. That was a huge flex the muscles quarter for them. Oh, I like the CFA talk. And, flex and flex the the muscles, of muscles. It, it was a huge it's flex it's the muscles quarter. And that's look. This is this is one. <laughs> yeah, if right. you're if you're a bear now coming a little out of hibernation mode thinking that you won. Why are you at me? <laughs> no, if, you, if you're a bear coming a little out of hibernation mode, right. I think ultimately what you saw from tech earnings, which yeah. just more and more bullish. Okay. At, and I think next week is going to yeah. be the golden moment. That's where Kupert- I want to go. I, I, I don't next care about all
2: AI talk. I want to know about next Thursday, Amazon and Apple. Amazon's not in that list of AI companies. I think they're in the cloud. Apple certainly isn't. How does Apple embrace AI? How did they get on this list of these companies...
8: Cook continues to play chess, others play checkers. And I think what, we're, what we believe, it's going to be an AI-driven app store. German's hinted at some of the AI technology, but I ultimately believe the next one, two years, that's just going to be a further penetration story, adds $30 to $40, some of the parts to Apple. Can it protect their
2: margins down the income statement? How many beeps can Apple pick up on uh, uh, EBITDA, let's say, out of AI five years out?
8: AI combined with chips, you're right. talking incremental, three 400 bips. That's it's just 300 bips improvement. Three to improvement. 400 bips improvement because they own their ecosystem plus AI okay. being pure software. How margins. quickly do they get to the $4 trillion market cap off a 300 bip improvement? I model believe about we five will years. be sitting here in early 2025 getting ready for Super Bowl and Apple will be $4 trillion. Okay,
6: breathe. So I acknowledged in the late 90s there were some real things that we didn't appreciate. We also got sold a lot of BS. So can you explain to me, and I wish we could curse on this show, could you explain to me what is an AI-generated app store? (laughs) What is that? So
8: so that's ultimately going to be whether it's health... Fitness, any types of apps developers are going to build. They're going to be AI generated with all what I will call generative AI technology that will be built within the app store. So ultimately, any Apple user will be able to download those apps for developers, just like we have the app store today. The next version of that is going to be an AI-driven app store that I believe Cupertino will ultimately come out, and I think they're actually starting the concept of it with you know Vision Pro and ultimately a new. Form
6: In the meantime, it's not going to be about that. It's going to be about how many iPhones they sell. For a long time, you've been bullish on this upgrade cycle that kind of never was. And it's always been the justification for why the stock's got to go further. So a lot of people that haven't upgraded, they're gonna buy the iPhone 13, 14, 15, and then it kind of remains the same and pretty staple. What's going on there?
8: Street numbers have moved up 15% on iPhones. So the thing is the bears ultimately thought sub 200 million, but yet they sold 225 million because they continue, and Keen, the tactician knows as well as anyone, they continue to underestimate the golden install base of Cupertino, which is why I view this as a mini super cycle playing out and I think Apple next Thursday. Cook on the call. That's just going to be further. What I've used fuel in the engine for this right. upgrade cycle. Here's the upgrade cycle. I just took a photo of Dan's shoe. The
2: saturation on this phone is so superior to anything. <laughs> and it uh, still be- doesn't capture it. the colorfulness. It doesn't capture. And, it, and look at that like camera te- The, the,
6: the technology and the chip. Isn't the Samsung camera better?
2: Yeah, but that this is a really important point. Overnight we got thirty Hasn't seconds. It always been better? When does Samsung just, just give it up? The report dominance. overnight was not good.
8: Look, Samsung everest like uphill battle, another sort of black eye for them. And I think ultimately it just it continues to be more and more share gains for Apple. And I think look Samsung it reminds you know, it just it's a continued struggle that they have again and again. Dan, it's good to catch up. Thanks I know we're time. gonna do this Thank together you. in the next week. I, I'm so put, I'm
6: looking forward to it. Uh, Thank you, buddy. I'm gonna put this out on Twitter. Ives Unfiltered. Unfiltered? Yeah. Just a picture of his sneakers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dan Ives of Wetbush. This
2: is the conversation of the day. If you are in Local 25 in Boston and you grew up with three generations of Teamsters and then you take on all of what we know, all of the decades and decades of history of the Teamsters, and you revolutionize unions in America... You come to a moment like we saw yesterday with Big Brown UPS. Sean O'Brien has provided the leadership on this. He's general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and joins us this morning. Sean, congratulations on this pre-vote agreement, this handshake agreement you have with UPS. In your comments and others, you say Amazon is next. Where do you move from this successful agreement to the next transportation company? Is
9: it Amazon? Amazon is definitely going to be a target uh, to organize. We're going to take this historic agreement uh, and use it as a template to show the Amazon workers uh, what they will receive when they join the Teamsters Union, and we organize them.
2: The significance of this agreement speaks to a new Teamsters. Does all of America, including I'm going to call capitalist America, misunderstand the modern labor
9: dynamic? I'm not sure if they misunderstand it but the one thing that we were able to achieve uh with this agreement is that we showed um the entire country uh what you can do when you have the support of your rank and file members Uh, i think we uh, put some more energy uh, into the labor movement but also uh, we got the largest deal done um, without having to strike the company so i think uh, we added credibility to the process and also uh, more importantly, we set the tone for what organized labor can achieve uh, against corporate America and these high uh, profits, and we want to be rewarded. Our members need to be rewarded.
4: Sean, you said that UPS blinked in a statement to your 340,000 members. Do you get the sense that corporations are more willing to blink now because of the labor shortages? That your negotiating power is stronger than it's been in a very long time?
9: Yeah, I think we've got a we've got tremendous leverage right now because. Um, you know, we we can leverage our ability. We provided we provided uh tremendous support during the pandemic, uh providing goods and services. And I think now it's the time to uh capitalize. I mean, we far too long we kept seeing CEO pay increasing, uh and stock options increasing, and our members pay, uh, not just in the Teamsters Union, but throughout the labor movement were not increasing. So I think right now we have the ability to um, really, really showcase and be the model and encourage uh, uh, other unions to stand up and fight.
4: How do you decide, Sean, when you're negotiating what the threshold is between workers' rights and workers' pay increases versus the health of a company of what's sustainable over a longer period of time, given that prices are increasing and this is an inflationary environment?
9: Well, I think first off, I mean, we had a great situation here with UPS, uh, because of our members and their hard work, they made a hundred billion dollars. So a healthy company uh, should share the profits and should share the wealth. Um, look, we take every negotiation. Uh, we do a deep dive. We're a lot more sophisticated than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we obviously uh, uh, study the finances, uh, study the projections, and make certain that you know we understand um, what what we can get out of these companies. But you know, far too long. Um, you know, everybody uses the economy saying, hey, we could probably go into a recession right. uh, and that's all well and good. We always come out of uh, bad situations at some point in time. So we always just stay focused on what our members need. We're not too concerned about Wall Street or the anything else. What is going right. to help our members survive and provide middle class opportunities for their families?
2: Mr. O'Brien, in the time that we have left, I mean, your sons are involved in this. Your father was local, 25 as well. You've lived this for your entire lifetime. How do we change the atomization of labor in America, the deunionization of America? Do you perceive a sea change with this agreement?
9: Yeah, I think this agreement is going to be a template uh, uh, to show the entire workforce, union and non union, what you get when you join a union. You're going to get wage increases, you're going to get health and welfare, you're going to get pension, but more importantly, you're going to get a dignity and respect and a future. Um, this agreement right. that we negotiated, you know, we protected against technology. We provided for full-time job opportunities. That's the leverage that you have when you're working right. uh, for the best contract in the industry, and we achieved that.
2: Sean, I, we're just going to run out of time here. I want you to speak to the Bloomberg Surveillance Office. There are a lot of fancy people. Let's be blunt. They're probably less pro-union than many. What do unions, what do the Teamsters bring to capitalists to provide for better productivity?
9: Hey, we bring the best workforce in America. We proved that during the pandemic, not just in UPS, but picking up rubbish, delivering groceries. We provided goods and services. We proved we're essential, and we're going to continue that. Uh, Mm post-pandemic, and we've got the best Uh, workforce in America. Sean O'Brien,
2: congratulations. All I ask is after UPS, you do something about the Red Sox. Sean O'Brien, Local 25 in Boston, and also with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters there as well. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday, starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keane and this is Bloomberg.